Hello, and thank you for listening to the Scottish Centre for Global History podcast. My name is Lauren Cochran. I'm a PhD student from the University of Exeter and alumni of the University of Dundee. Today, I'm talking to Niels Bunder, a PhD student at the University of Warwick. Hi, Niels. Thank you for participating in the podcast and agreeing to share your research with us. Could you introduce yourself for our audience? Yeah, definitely. Um, hi, and thanks for letting me take part. Yeah, as you said, my name's Niels. I am a PhD student at Warwick. I also work with the Imperial War Museum, and my research is about late and post-colonial Kenya, uh, thinking about sort of the aftermaths of the Mau Mau uprising and decolonization more generally. So now that we know a little bit more about you, can you provide us with a summary of your research project? Uh, yeah, of course. So... Um, Mau Mau uprising happens in the 1950s, sort of an anti-colonial uprising against uh, the British colonial state. And there's quite a sort of well-established literature, historiography, I'd say, about the causes of the uprising, the course of the uprising itself. Um, there's a lot of been work that's been done on the sort of counterinsurgency effort that the British lead, the detention camps that come out of that, things like that. Where my project comes in, is I think there's a sort of a, a gap in the historiography in the aftermath of it, in what happens to people that fought and what happens to them in the years that follows and how they kind of fit into the post-colonial state. So essentially, uh, my work, um, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a bit of political history, it's a bit of social history, it's a bit of cultural history. I try and sort of combine the different fields. Um, so essentially, I try and trace the sort of political lives of the men and women that were involved in Mau Mau, uh, and then how the co colonial and post-colonial states basically deals with that. Um, so I'm very interested in the concept of reconciliation and how reconciliation, which we normally see as a sort of positive thing that happens in a post-conflict society that can have uh, sort of complicated and different difficult aspects to it. So, for example, um, there's quite a common thing that people say about Mau Mau in Kenya, which is that it was forgotten and I would rather sort of forced amnesia by the by the post-colonial state because it was too difficult to sort of handle the the violence and the memory of that violence. Um, and I, I'm sort of arguing against that. And I'm saying that actually it was much more complicated than that. There was sort of fairly nuanced ways in which uh, former Mau Mau sort of found a place in the post-colonial state. So that sort of general theme of reconciliation is a real focus on that. Uh, and as I sort of elaborate the project further, yes, local politics and reconciliation is my, is my focus. And whereas at the beginning of the PhD, I was really focusing on the late colonial state. Uh, now I'm much more focusing on the post-colonial state, um, which has been very interesting. I've been to Kenya and worked in the archive there. Um, and I really feel that's where a lot more work can be done on the sort of early post-colonial state. Um, yeah. So that's a very, a very brief sketch of the broad outlines of my project. That's really interesting. Now, why did you choose this project? What were your motivations? What brought you to this aspect of the Mau Mau Rebellion? Yeah, it's it's a, it's always an interesting question. I think that sort of during my undergrad, I became more interested in kind of African history and specifically because I'm very interested in that kind of the history of sort of uh, sort of post-war violence, local politics, those kind of themes. And, and those themes haven't been explored as much in Africa as you would imagine. So it, it provides a, a place to do that kind of research. Um, so that was kind of what drew me into Africa. And then I did my master's dissertation at Cambridge about 
um, about Zimbabwe, about what it was called Rhodesia at the time, about the kind of the war against settler colonialism there in the 60s and the 70s. And I was very, so I was very interested in those kind of liberation wars and things like that and the cultural aspects of that and also what happens in their aftermath. So uh, Zimbabwe, it's quite famous what happens afterwards because uh, the war veterans, they sort of remain a part of Zimbabwean politics. In the beginning of the 2000s, they end up taking a lot of white farms, and that was a big news story then. So that was always sort of these themes that were very interested to me. And then an opportunity to do a PhD um, with Professor David Anderson and Dan Branch at Warwick came up that sort of fit into that um, sort of sphere, um, but with the Kenyan example. So I decided to sort of change geographical focus and move there. And the interesting thing about the PhD as well is that it's a collaborative doctoral project between the Imperial War Museum and the University of Warwick. It does mean that I have an incredible amount of supervisors. I think I've had four over the course of the two years. Um, but it But it means that I get a sort of direct plugging into the sort of the cultural sphere and sort of the public history side of it as well. So the PhD ended up just sort of being a perfect package. Um, so yeah, so, so, so when, I, when the opportunity came up, I, uh, I had to go for it and, and it's proved to be, it's proved to be an incredibly rich and interesting topic over the past couple of years. That's really interesting. Could you provide a summary of the main arguments of your research project? Yeah, definitely. So, so I think the, the the main argument I'm trying to get across is that even in a conflict that hasn't been discussed from the perspective of post-war reconciliation, right? So we think about post-war reconciliation, we think about um, the end, the Rwandan genocide, or the end of apartheid, or Northern Ireland. We think about very recent conflicts because it's only really since 1990 that the sort of social science field of sort of peace studies or reconciliation studies has begun. It's become an academic field of study there. But obviously reconciliation has to happen in ev after every conflict, because uh, particularly after a civil war, a community kind of has to knit itself back together again. And whereas that has been studied quite extensively in Europe, in Africa, we remain focused on conflicts that sort of the UN got involved in and had these sort of formal post-war processes. So the innovation that I want to bring is what if we look at conflicts that haven't been treated from that sort of post-war lens and we see in, and, and actually just go to the sources, see what's happening on the ground. How are communities stitching themselves back together, even if there isn't a formal process? And I think Mau Mau is a perfectly illustrative example of that because it has this quite, it has this very rich historiography, but it doesn't have that kind of post-war discussion. So that's the kind of central contribution that I want to bring. And as I've been reading the sources, as I've been working out, I've found out all these kind of, these grassroots processes of reconciliation, these state-led processes that maybe weren't advertised in national newspapers, but that were happening on the ground. And I've actually been able to sort of stretch back that argument into the emergency itself, because I actually think that the colonial state, even though it was profoundly violent and racialized in the, the insurgents and, and, and created these detention camps, they also were doing those things with the eventual outcome of producing a sort of quote-unquote reconciled central Kenya, a central Kenya that in their eyes would be safe for colonialism. So I've developed this notion of sort of coercive reconciliation, um, which, which sounds like an oxymoron, but I think captures the way in which 
they tried to sort of weld the community back together through violence. And I think that process carries over the caesura of independence. There's a coercive reconciliation the process that happens at the end of the emergency, and it continues into the way in which the post-colonial period deal, the post-colonial government, in fact, deals with Mau Mau. And it's that continuity, and obviously it lots changes, but that's kind of the complexity that I'm trying to capture. Um, it's still very much sort of under construction, but that's the kind of central argument um, I want to present. This part of your project obviously contributes to the more nuanced perception of the Kenya emergency from the traditional hardline distinction between the Mau Mau rebellion as being perceived as a civil war or an anti-colonial rebellion. It seems like your project is looking at the middle way between those two ideas. And I find it interesting the way that you're addressing the internal complexities of that element of the conflict. Yeah, definitely. I think both components are very, very important, right? So I think that in the sense that it was a civil war, that's where a lot of the reconciliation stuff comes in. Because but, but because it was an anti-colonial conflict, it couldn't just be forgotten. I think that's kind of the, the what, why this process happens is because it has those two components. Because as lots of Kenyans would argue, without Mau Mau, Kenya wouldn't have been independent when it was, and it maybe the independence would have been would have looked very, very different. So if you accept that premise, but you also accept that most of the people that died during Mau Mau were other Kikuyu, essentially Mau Mau killing other Kikuyu and loyalists killing Mau Mau, then you have to accept that that is something that needs to be reconciled. So it's the it's it's those two components. Um, I always think very illustrative this is Ngugi Wationgo's A Grain of Wheat, which is his novel about one of his three or four novels that sort of deal with Mau Mau. But I think it's the most nuanced one because it's set right at the moment of Kenya's independence, yet it captures all these terrible local consequences of a civil war um people coming home from a detention camp knowing that they've betrayed someone um families that have been torn apart by the violence so in ngugi's novel he captures that kind of complexity of a civil a post-civil war society that is also experiencing the euphoria of independence and i think it's that complexity that I'm trying to capture. But if but to use sort of to go further on and Googie later writes novels like Petals of Blood that express a version of Mau Mau that is much more political, much more anti-colonial, just exclusively anti-colonial, I'd say. And I think that that leads me on to something else, which is that the memory of this, the process, the memory of the process I'm describing is incredibly contested. I'd say that um Kenya's first president, Jomo Kenyatta, what Jomo Kenyatta thinks about Mau Mau is almost as contentious as whether Mau Mau was a civil war or an anti-colonial rebellion. I think that Kenyatta's place in Kenya itself, and I get this from sort of conversations with Kenyans, is incredibly controversial. So if I come to Kenya and say, oh no, Kenyatta was actually a reconciler, I know lots of Kenyans would be very, very upset by that. And that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that he was thinking about reconciliation, maybe not in the way that we would sort of see as ideal, but that these discussions were happening and that it was a part of Kenya's political process. And the fact that Kenya's most famous author, I think also spent a lot of time thinking about this, Ngugi grew up during the emergency, I think is telling that, that there are these are maybe bigger questions that ought to be answered. From what you've said, 
your project seems to focus largely on memories of Mau Mau in Kenya. Britain and Kenya had a special relationship in the immediate post-colonial period. Does your project address British perceptions of Mau Mau? How do you deal with the continuities or differences in the historical amnesia in both countries after the emergency ended? I must admit, I haven't looked extensively at Britain's relationship. I think what is important is that the way in which sort of British officials and British sort of academics and intellectuals thought about Mao in the 1950s had a consequence in Kenya as well. So there's the famous uh, the, the ethno-psychological explanation of Mao Mao, which was this sort of deeply racist conception that the kind of the African mind was trapped in a crisis of transition. It's 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 crank psychology stuff, but it had a real impact at the time. And more generally, the notion that Mao Mao was a product of a kind of failed modernization, that it was a sort of people trapped between tradition and modernity. I think that's that conception is very, very important for the way in which Britons have talked about the colonial past. And that sort of that modernization theory, the kind of civilizing mission way of viewing the past, that has a real consequence. But I think that's true in Kenya to a certain extent as well. I think when when so Jomo Kenyatta, like I was talking about, he talks about Mau Mau as a as a kind of disease as a kind of malaise of the body politic is the way I would describe it. And I think that's taking straight from the kind of ethno-psychological explanation of Mao Mao. I don't think he's condemning the individuals as a disease in that quotation, but I think he's saying that it's a byproduct of modernization, a sort of negative symptom of modernization. So I think there is a real similarity between the way in sort of British intellectuals view it and the way in which Kenyans view it. Um, I think on 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 later memories, I I definitely agree that this conflict sort of ebbed from the British public imagination much quicker than it ever could in Kenya, uh, and and the fact that now again sort of people are starting to discuss about discuss this again is quite interesting because it's coming at a time where in Kenya I think people are also re-examining the colonial past and there are these quite interesting connections. There are a lot of lawsuits happening by Kenyans who are wanting sort of reparations for things that happened during the the colonial period. So it's interesting how these two discussions. Maybe we would call it cultural decolonization. Political decolonization happened in the 60s, but just sort of cultural decolonization is happening in both places at the same time. Um, but I think a lot more work is to be done on, on, on the British component of that. The reason I asked is because my PhD project is concerned with British public memory of Mau Mau. So I wondered in what ways you've encountered that contention between British memory and Kenyan post-colonial memory and what your interpretations of that element are. You briefly mentioned the sources that you're using, trips to Kenya, things like that. Could you tell us about your methodology, the approaches that you're using? Yeah, definitely. So I, I have discovered that I am a very pure archival historian because I there is so much material that hasn't been looked at so I found I've, I've just started my third year is that the first few years I've basically been in multiple archives for a long time so the main source actually is the migrated archive which are these files that were illegally taken from Kenya in the early 1960s 
Um, so they're kind of Kenyan administration files. So that, that really ought by all rights be in Kenya, but they were taken by the British because they were deemed to be sort of of historical significance and the post-colonial state shouldn't have them. Um, now, these files like these files have been criticized because some historians have presented them as a kind of panacea, like it's going to answer all questions we have about late colonialism. Now, if you go to these files, they are not the answer to all questions. Uh, in, in fact, they, they tend to sort of fill in gaps, but they're, they're, they're not a kind of massive uh, expose. But where they are very useful is if you're interested in the very last years before independence, because basically what happened in those last years is as um, Africans were being brought into government before independence, like literally sort of as government ministers, the white officers in the colonial administration basically didn't trust them with sort of secret files. So those secret files were the ones who were, which were often being taken to London. So if you look at the migrated archive at the National Archives, at the Kenyan files, you'll find a whole series that are about the Mau Mau emergency, and they've been used quite well. But the ones that haven't been used quite well are these very, very late colonial intelligence sources. And that's where I've found incredible amount of material about these kind of neo or post Mau Mau organizations. And that's really been a bulk of evidence. But to think about methodologies, if you're relying on colonial intelligence sources, you have to do an awful lot of sort of reading against the grain, comparing with other files. I think because so much of the colonial administration was operating on an idea of what African political organization was like. And if the, if the facts don't really fit together, they tend to just sort of force it into a mold that they understand. So, for example, every Kikuyu political organization has to be like Mau Mau. And, and that makes it quite difficult to read the sources sometimes because you're thinking, are they just describing this because they expect it to be like this or because it's actually like this? Um, so there's a, there's a lot of kind of reading against the grain that has to be done. Thankfully, there are quite a few good memoirs written by ex Mau Mau. So often I find myself going to one of these Mau Mau, uh, memoirs and just reading the last chapter because the last chapter will describe the kind of post Mau Mau period. Um, so, so there's been a lot of uh, good material that way. The second big source has been, uh, my, I went to Kenya for two months at the beginning of this year. I spent a lot of time in the Kenyan National Archive, which is a whole adventure in and of itself because the archive there is, it has an incredible amount of material, but it's not catalogued very well. So you, so I was there for eight weeks and I had to use the full eight weeks to basically get to grips with it. And, and by the end of it, I understood it very well. Um, but that was a whole experience. Um, and that was a fantastic source, particularly for the post-colonial period. I came with a sort of very broad idea of what I was going to find, I ended up finding lots of good material from one specific district. So that district has become sort of the focus of a, a whole chapter at the end of the, of the thesis. Um, and then I'm also planning on a second trip to do more oral histories. I want to do more oral histories. I want that to be a bigger part of it. Also, it's kind of necessary. Otherwise, I'm mostly just citing kind of either colonial or post-colonial just members of the government. Um, and, I, and I want a lot more of the kind of local feeling. But the problem with oral histories in, on that period is people are very, very old. There aren't that many people still left. The, I did four or five interviews when I was in Kenya on the first trip, and they were incredibly interesting. But they were incredibly interesting in the sense that they gave you sort of a flavor of what it was like to be around in that period. But I'm never going to be able to go this political, this specific political organization. Could you give me lots of information about that? Because there just aren't 
enough people still around that can kind of be that specific. Um, so I'm going to have to still, I still have to figure out what place oral histories are going to find in the, in the thesis, but it's definitely something I want to do much more of. Um, I probably have enough archival material that I could write the whole thesis now because there's just so much. And it's a, it, it began as quite a broad topic just about local politics. So, so there's a whole lot of material there. Um, and then I'm kind of narrowing it down to reconciliation to make it fit. Um, but yes, these oral histories hopefully will be um, a bigger part of it um, by the time it I come to sort of finally writing up. That's a very interesting combination of sources. You said one of your chapters in your thesis is going to be a micro history of one district. Are you hoping to interweave the oral histories with that? Are you able to engage with that community specifically? that's exactly what i want to do so because i found such good files from that specific district when i go for my second trip i'm planning on just going there and i have a few people that i know in that area so i'm going to try do all my interviews there and that i think that's the only way that i'm going to have a chance of actually sort of yeah getting specific information about specific organizations so this district it's called nyeri it it has a remarkable organization that sort of persists into the post-colonial period it, it's it's almost like a secret society but it's also like a political party and and it hasn't been written about at all in historiography but it comes up constantly in the files and i almost know that people must know about it locally because it comes up so often um and there's sort of specific mps that are associated with it and it's uh it, it's a perfect it perfectly captures kind of the kind of activism that I'm trying to talk about. Um, so I really want to go there and I, I would love to meet people that kind of have knowledge of it, memory of it. Um, but another component of doing a history of Mau Mau, and I think everybody that works on Mau Mau has to deal with this, is that there is an incredible, because of the way in which Mau Mau was organized, there's an incredible sort of secretiveness about it that still continues. And that might be even more true for these post-colonial organizations because they weren't, you know, at least if you were fighting against the colonial state, you can come out and say, I was a freedom fighter, I fought against the colonial state. But if you're a member of a post-colonial opposition group, particularly where the people you're opposing are members of your own community, Kenyatta was a Kikuyu, and if you were organizing in Nyeri against the Kikuyu president, that's slightly more problematic to discuss. Um, so I think the second trip will be a real um, a real adventure, and, and we'll see what I can find. Um but but yeah, I'm just I'm just fairly excited by the prospect um, because I, because I think I will find something. That's really exciting. It's great to be able to engage with existing sources and be able to use them to build a new collection of data from oral histories based on these archival files that you're using. Because you mentioned the migrated archives, I feel we should discuss the elephant in the room about these files. A lot of researchers are dealing with the temporary withdrawal of these files from the National Archives in London. Have you been affected by this or did you manage to get the bulk of your research with these files done before they were removed? They were withdrawn at the start of June, so we're now approaching the six-month mark of their unavailability. Yeah. Oh, it's. It, I was very lucky because I, was, I did most of my sort of bulk, sort of taking 2,000 pictures a day in the migrated archive last year. Um, but I will I will say about it, I think that it's it's perfect. The fact that they've been withdrawn is just another illustration of how ridiculous it is that they're here 
and that they haven't just that they weren't priority one for the National Archive to digitize, right? Like if the National Archives is going to digitize anything, this should be the first priority because they're files that really should just go on a plane and be sent to the countries they were taken from. And and I'm all for having a copy at the National Archives, right? Like they're part because they're part of British history too. I will say that they're part of British history too. They might belong to those countries right for the part of British history. But the fact that that hasn't been done, that they've been withdrawn for so long. I mean, I've probably handled more migrated archive documents than most other people. I'm still okay. I haven't been infected by whatever chemical they were used to be treated. Um, so I think, yeah, they should be, it should be priority one for the National Archives to do with them. Because um, it's just it's just continuing the colonial injustice, essentially. That, because, because I know so many people, Kenyans, that have come, that have planned trips to the UK to see these files and then they can't see them. It's it's honestly shocking. I will say as a, as a kind of counterpoint, because I, I think this deserves to be said, we shouldn't turn the migrated archives into like a cult thing either. The, 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 this, as I said, is sort of a panacea to answer all questions. Because they're not in the countries they belong to, like a myth has grown up around them. So I was at a conference two weeks ago in Kenya, well, I, I was attending virtually with the conferences in Kenya about Mau Mau and almost every speaker mentioned the injustice of them not having these files. And I completely agree with them. The file should be repatriated. But they also seem to think that every question, every open question about Kenyan history, the answer is in these files. And they're not. They're, they're, they're administration files. They give you interesting things, but they're not this kind of ultimate answer but i think that as long as we keep them kind of under lock and key in london the myth around them is just going to grow up and grow up and it's actually actively damaging the relationship between britain and say kenya because kenyans believe that this is being withheld from them um so yeah i think it's a really important discussion we need to talk about it more I, I also think we should more than just repatriate the archive. I think part of kind of repaying the colonial debt should be financial assistance to our, the archive there. I think that would be a really good way of, of not just sort of ending this injustice, but kind of moving forward to a new relationship. I think a sort of archival partnership um, would be a really good solution um, because our, the archive there is a quite an important national institution. Like so many of the Kenyans I spoke to really find it sort of beautiful that they have this place that's a kind of repository of the national memory. But the fact that it's quite run down, the fact that it's incomplete, the fact that it doesn't get very much funding, I think is a real shame. And I think that Western governments really should do more in that field. And I think historians like us should advocate for that. I completely agree. I feel, especially since the 2013 court case where the migrated archives were revealed, they've become a buzzword within the academic community, which has contributed to the myth that you're talking about, about them being the answer to all historical questions about the British decolonization of its empire. I agree that the files should be repatriated. The UK shouldn't have the original versions. I also think that the removal and movement of these files feeds the debate and keeps questions over their residency alive. Yeah, definitely. In terms of the other sources that you've used, are there any specific sources that you found particularly interesting that have got you excited? Is there anything you found that is new and quintessential to your topic? That's a very good question. So I think 
when I was in Kenya, the, the the files that I think have been the most interesting, and they're quite difficult because a lot of them are in Kikuyu, so I've had to kind of work to have them translated. They're these petitions, these petitions from sort of communities of people who might sort of hire someone to, to write the petition from them. It, it's, it's almost a kind of, I think early modernists would be much more familiar with this style of writing, but it's quite interesting when you come across it. Um, and they're basically petitions demanding from the Kenyan state sort of reparations, land consolidation to be ended, things like that. But they have the most amazing kind of titles and stamps. And there's like a whole sort of bureaucracy, like a, like a micro bureaucracy that has grown up in these sort of post Mau Mau communities that says something really interesting about the way in which they see themselves as a kind of alternative government. And that they're kind of, they've taken bits of the sort of bureaucratic state and then they've, um, they've replicated in these petitions but actually i'd say the 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 document that interests me the most that i found the most interesting when i found is actually in the imperial war museum's archive when i was working there in the first year of my phd and it's a document it's a translated document but it's a it's a war diary of the mau mau so it's a specific mau mau gang they were sort of um arrested by this specific british colonial officer and he found this document which was essentially a sort of diary that the mau mau would keep this gang was keeping recording their own efforts and it's i think it's the most amazing source because it 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 captures exactly the things that they found important and, and we really don't have many sources like this almost all the mau mau sources we have are from people who wrote it down much later in English for a, a bigger audience. This was very much for themselves. And it and it almost reads like a medieval chronicle, the way they, they talk about sort of, and then we went there and we fought them and we did this. And it and it it really prioritizes kind of the relationship with the community and the individual bravery. And it's a really amazing source. And, and at one point it does a kind of it shows the Mau Mau's own view of history. So at one point they talk about how um, the, the the English, when they were fighting against the Romans, took an oath and came into the forest and fought for self-government. And it talks about, it has a very sort of warped idea of what like the English Civil War was about and how the English Civil War was the like fighting against the king and for parliament. That's what the Mau Mau were doing. So they have this like deep understanding of, that history and that comes across in this source. So it's a really amazing document. It's in the IWM's archive. Um, yeah. And, and I just think that those very authentic first, really first person voices of Mama are really missing because it's all done after the fact through oral histories and things like that. Um, so it's a really amazing source and um, I've written about it a little bit, but, but I think, yeah, that, that, that's the one I would really flag up. I had no idea any sources like that existed. I guess these files showcasing Mama fighters' understanding of British history is just another example of how British knowledge was ingrained in colonial settings. It's very telling that in a situation of military conflict, African soldiers are referring to in their personal writing to traditionally Western experiences of conflict rather than invoking African histories of warfare. Well, it's the it's the that their whole education was kind of yeah a sort of Anglo-centric education. But the the Bible has a massive impact as well. It's filled with kind of biblical references, and yeah, this sort of imposition of a frame of history that that, that we had and that was kind of put onto them. But that they 
made their own and and they drew the lessons from it that they wanted to draw from it like um when a when a missionary told some kikuyu school children about you know Oliver Cromwell and Charles I, he never intended for them 20 years later to be using it as an example to to be fighting against them and and I find that I find that very remarkable and and incredibly incredibly interesting um but yeah so yeah it's a really good source that one your PhD is being undertaken with the Imperial War Museum, and that's where you discovered this war diary source. Could you tell us a bit more about your engagement with the museum and what that entails with your PhD? Yeah, no, definitely. So my funding structure is it's called a collaborative doctoral project. And a lot of CDPs, as they're called, they rely on essentially you going in and working with a particular collection and writing your PhD about a particular collection. Now, mine's much more open than that. I'm basically quite free to find my role in, in the IWM. Um, so I'm sort of attached to the Cold War team, which does kind of the decolonial conflicts as well. And my role, I'd say, is primarily sort of and being an agitator. I quite like that role because essentially the museum has very little in its kind of public displays to do with any of the decolonial conflicts, Aden, Malaya, Cyprus, Palestine. There's basically nothing about any of them, um, which is a but people in the museum acknowledge that. Because because it's a kind of and there's a there's the specific history of how the museum developed that means that's missing. Essentially, they didn't decide until the 1970s that they were going to collect post Second World War material. So because of that, there is a kind of three decade gap where they did very little collecting. Uh, but there are a few items, as I was describing in the museum's collection that relate to Kenya. So my job kind of has been um collating that kind of making nice documents that say everything they have about kenya and what could be done with those documents um so there's a real i think 2024 2025 the museum is doing a kind of dedicated empire and conflict season so a lot of the work i've been doing is kind of saying maybe we could talk about kenya then and, and sort of producing things that could be used for them but it's all still very in like embryonic the way i would describe it as well is i think the museum, partially because of the name, has like a reputation of not being very good on these issues. And I think that reputation was probably earned in the past. But right now in the museum, in my experience, there's a huge number of people that want it to change. If you look at the, they've just got new Second World War galleries. And even if you compare the First World War galleries, which were done in 2014, to the new Second World War galleries, which were done this year, there's been a huge expansion in the discussion about empire. The discussion, I think, has moved from sort of simple inclusivity like just mentioned that there were indian soldiers um which which i think promotes this narrative of kind of the notion that empire was this kind of consensual happy production uh that's what i think you see in the first world war gallery by the second world war gallery they're talking about kind of how a forced conscription in in parts of africa and the, the the toll of the like heavy labor in kind of rubber plantations and things like that the discussion has already become much more nuanced now and i hope that when we eventually get around to doing the cold war galleries um that the, the the decolonial conflicts are going to be a much much bigger part of it and there are items in the museum's collection to tell that story um but right now i think people I think all cultural institutions are under an incredible amount of pressure. There just aren't enough people to trying to do too much work. And particularly in a, in a museum like the IWM where a huge amount of the funding comes from sort of private donors. And 
essentially in the UK, people with lots of money aren't particularly interested in telling these stories. They're much more interested in talking about sort of the Second World War and things like that, which means that projects like this have to derive all their funding from DCMS, from uh, the sort of culture part of government. Um, and if you have a government that's turning the culture wars into something that's kind of weaponized, you're just not going to get much funding for projects like this. Um, so we're doing our best sort of from the means that the museum has, but um, it's difficult. And But I can I can draw some comfort from the fact that I think I've been able to convince people within the museum that this is something important to consider. Um, and I'm just going to keep chipping away at it. And, and I'm sure that by the time I come to the end of the project, there'll be some sort of more major um, developments of it. But it's been, it's been incredibly good um, working in the institution and the people have been incredibly receptive. Um, and we have a sort of a little group of people that are working on, 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 on projects that are similar, that people working on photography in Malaya and on uh, army recruitment in the Second World War in India. And, they, and they've been kind of together, we hope to sort of change the culture. Um, and I think it's going quite well. That's great to hear. It's also good for you and your project in the, the work that you're undertaking. You can see the immediate impact. It contributes to the constantly evolving transition towards a realisation of the various elements of British imperial history. To pull this back towards your project's arguments, here's a big question. How does the project that you're undertaking change the way we think about the Kenya emergency and reconciliation after the Mau Mau rebellion? Oh gosh, that's a very big question. Yeah, I guess I guess I'd say two two big things. Firstly, I think um, when it comes to the Kenya specific historiography, I think we need to, if we're going to understand the Kenyan post colonial state in a more nuanced way and link the colony and the post colony, this period, that component of reconciliation needs to be much more focused on. That I think. The, not just even Kenya, but every post-colonial state, every post-colonial state is in part a product of a process of whether flawed or successful of reconciliation between the people that had aided the colonial state, because every colonial state relied on collaborators to some extent, and the people that had fought against them. And every post-colonial state is in some way that kind of a compromise, right? And I think that if we think about that, then we could learn a lot more about how post-colonial states. So there's, it's very commonly, you know, I think every Africanist would have real deep criticisms of the way in which every post-colonial state developed. And I think we need to see post-colonial states as a product of these compromises, necessary compromises. Um, and we may disagree with the specific compromises that they made, but someone had to make compromises. So I think that this specific study of, Mau Mau in Kenya can teach us something about the way in which post-colonial states were constructed generally. And then on the more sort of theoretical side of things, I think it's really important that we break, we sort of take reconciliation of like, uh, this is very much, I'm a, I'm a partisan historian. Um, so I think we should take reconciliation away from the social scientists, right? They can have it, they can write their manuals for the UN. How do you make peace in a war-torn country? That's all very important. But as historians, I think we should claim that field and say this is a very useful set of tools for looking at different historical periods, whether it's in Africa, it's in Asia and Europe, whether it's 
the Peloponnesian Wars or something very, very recent. It's a very important way of, of, of conceiving of how humans live in society. And, and, and to, to some extent, every society has probably experienced some sort of rupture, some sort of civil war, and, and the country has to be put back together again afterwards. Um, I'm from the Netherlands. I think the anxiety about people that collaborated with the Germans and in, 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 the, in the Second World War and the place of the memory of collaboration is the kind of big unspoken thing at the bottom of my own country's national memory. And I think that's true for Kenya as well. I think it's true for lots of countries around the world. And that kind of teasing out those nuances, I think, is very important and, and sort of part of what I want my project to say on a much bigger stage um, than just the specific example I have. And yet, I think that's probably a good a good sort of final thought on my part, which is just, I think historians, particularly PhD students, shouldn't be afraid to want to say something bigger. Like, obviously, yeah, get down in the archive, get into the nitty gritty, you know, I'm, I'm citing incredibly local, incredibly tight things, but say something bigger about the post-colonial state, about post-war societies, and and be confident in your conclusions. Um, and and I'm incredibly lucky that my sort of my supervisors have allowed me to do that. Um, and hopefully that can then sort of spin off into new projects and things like that. Um, but yeah, it it that's kind of the the big takeaways I'd say. It's great that you can take a step back from the immediate granular concerns of the research project and see the wider implications for other post-colonial states and the larger ideological concept of reconciliation. Finally, I just want to talk about your involvement in the documentary that was released earlier this year about the Mau Mau Rebellion. A Very British Way of Torture came out in August and is available to watch on all four. Can you tell us about this? How you found the experience and your involvement in that? Yeah, definitely. So I think I was incredibly lucky to be part of this documentary. Um, essentially, it was a documentary that was based on some of the migrated archive files that we were discussing earlier, specifically the migrated archive files that relate to some cases of, of brutality during the emergency. And essentially what we try to do with the documentary is this is evidence that was never sort of outed publicly in court because the British government, when they had the Mau Mau case sort of 2011 to 2013, they settled. They settled with the with the plaintiffs, with the with the Kenyans who were seeking, seeking reparations. So this evidence was never actually discussed publicly. And and maybe if the court case had happened, there would have been sort of headlines for a few weeks dealing with this stuff. So basically, with this documentary, we tried to get that evidence out um, and 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 hopefully people watch the documentary and they can see it. My own involvement with it is is that the the product the production company essentially what they did is they they in, they asked some sort of um, more senior academics um, to provide kind of lists of people that could could um, could work. And I got interviewed. I was actually in Kenya while I was doing the interview, which maybe helped. Um, and and the reason I think I got asked to do it is because I have actually. I have all these documents on my hard drive. Like I have worked very closely with these documents. Um, and so, yeah, they, they asked me to help, uh, help out. I did it. I sort of sat for a three and a half hour interview and then that ends up becoming kind of 10 minutes of footage that gets used in the documentary, but it was incredibly good. They really let you sort of explore ideas and then they sort of cut the most 
quippy one-liners out of it but uh but they actually let you really discuss it properly and and we we because we were really focusing on a set of specific files it was much more granular and close up than the average history documentary and we were really able to talk about individuals and things like that um so that was incredibly fun actually i think the most fun part of working on the documentary wasn't about the kind of screen time it was because I, I actually like helped out with a lot of the documents. I, I was sending lots of PDFs and stuff. And, and there were, there was like, there were a lot of sort of legal concerns and stuff like law, lawyers for television programs, particularly when you're discussing something that kind of involves people that may still be alive. It's incredibly sort of legally tough. So essentially every claim we make in the documentary had to be sort of footnoted in quite a lot of detail. And I helped out with a lot of that kind of, administrative stuff at the back end um but it was fantastic because it's it was really sort of as a historian you can spend so much time and you know that you're writing for an incredibly small audience of people that are very very interested so to actually do proper archival history work for such a much bigger audience um, was really fulfilling and really interesting uh, and i and i'm incredibly proud of the final product um and yeah people should go see it yeah I definitely agree. I think it's very, very well done. Like I said, a lot of my project is concerned with British public memory and the role of history documentaries in cultivating cultural understandings of British colonial history. And I think the narrative of this particular programme was very strong and how it dealt with what is a very complicated historical event with enduring legacies made it accessible and understandable without glossing over the heavier elements of the story to do with abuse and torture and the various actors involved in that. I think the way the documentary looked at the roles of different colonial administrators and the relationship with the British metropolitan government alongside the inclusion of Kenyan voices through interviews conveyed the various political and social implications of the emergency. I would highly recommend watching it and you came across very eloquently. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. No, it was I, I should echo that actually. It was the the producers did an incredibly good job in Kenya of sort of seeking out people that experienced the detention camps sort of firsthand. Um yeah, and that was that was a touch that was incredibly important for all of us making it. Um so yeah, I the the, the production company did a did an amazing job. That is going to conclude our discussion. Thank you so much for joining us. I wish you all the best in your future work, Niels. Thank you very much.